Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about On Her Majesty's Secret Service, starring George Lazenby, Diana Rigg, Telly Savalas, Bernard Lee, and directed by Peter Hunt. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. This is Arnie, and my allergies are cured. So we are here with our sixth James Bond Eon film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. They finally got around to this one. They actually wanted to produce this one after Goldfinger. This is the first James Bond novel by Fleming, by the way, that was written once the movie series had started. But because of certain situations, this and that, they went with Thunderball, then You Only Live Twice, and finally this one. And the big piece of trivia, of course, around on Her Majesty's Secret Service is this is the only film to star George Lazenby as James Bond. Yeah, I was totally jazzed to see this again. I must have seen it before because I remembered a lot of skiing and I remembered it ended with a bullet through glass. That's the only things I could have told you about it. But people that are Bond files had assured me that this is one of, if not the best Bond movies. I hadn't seen this one before, but strangely, I have seen Lazenby as Bond before. I happen to have seen the Get Smart movie The Nude Bomb. It turns out Lazenby has a long career of being James Bond in other things. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So he's a punchline? Yeah, pretty much. Well, who is this guy? I got to say, I did go as so far as to look him up, and I didn't see really any credits prior to this. Brock, do you know why they went to Lazenby for Bond? Who was he in 1968, 1969, when they started rolling on this? Yeah, that's a very good question. The answer is quite surprising. They actually auditioned about 400 different actors, and they offered the role to a 22-year-old actor named Timothy Dalton. The man's turned it down because he said he was too young for the role. Awesome! That's a great story. And you know what? That's funny because this guy kind of plays the way that I think of Timothy Dalton playing Bond. So they definitely seem to have an ideal with what they were going for. The reason they went with Lazenby is they saw a commercial for something called Big Fry Chocolate Cream. going to call this man from now on. I'm not even going to call him George Lazenby. Big fried chocolate cream is uh, going to take over the franchise. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I've seen the commercial. <laughs> it is on YouTube. You saw the commercial and still don't know what it is? That's a bad commercial. 
Yeah, I, well, I saw pieces and parts of it. I didn't actually see the full commercial. They saw the guy. He looked the part. They went through some connections. He impressed them through a series of auditions, and he gets the job. I'm calling bullshit on this. I don't believe this. This had to be a bet. Like, the Broccoli's were like, I bet you this franchise is so successful, we could make anybody Bond. Like It's like trading places, the Bond version. Or somebody got drunk and threw a dart, and wherever it landed, on whoever's head shot, this cannot be that they saw a chocolate egg cream commercial or whatever and said, Bond! Even if that story's true, you don't publicize that. That's embarrassing. That's setting the guy up to fail. Another part of the story was when he was going in for the audition, he went to get Connery's suit. He went to get his haircut at the exact place where Connery got his haircut. Met Broccoli there that day. Broccoli overheard him say, I want a Sean Connery haircut that impressed Broccoli. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is Lazenby wanted to look like Connery as much as possible because the MO was, let's get another Connery. (laughs) <laughs> but th- that to me just seems pathetic that they are so unwilling to see the idea that someone else could play the part. Because I'll tell you what, it's not like the character on the page was Connery. It's not like, oh, it clearly has to be this guy and none other. They changed the characters for the movies. Connery, he did it quite well, but the idea that they're trying to waxwork Connery, that's only setting up for failure. The director seems to agree with you. Lazenby's biggest complaint about the director was anyone can play James Bond if we give him the right look, the right style, the right surroundings, and did not get enough help along from the director. Is this director anybody? Did he do previous Bonds? He was the editor for the first four Bond films. He was the assistant director on the fifth one, and they promised he would be able to get the head chair on this one. Peter Hunt. I believe that he's an editor because the way that this movie is going to feel right out the gate, this tone of the Bond pictures feels different now. The way that this movie is cut, and it is the longest of the Bond films, I do believe. This one goes nearly two and a half hours here. It does feel like an editor is in control of this. And not a good editor. Wouldn't it be shorter? Well, again, this is the guy who edited the first five James Bond movies. What I find interesting about the whole thing is that it definitely feels different, Stuart, but it's the guy who was editing who came up with all these speeding up tricks and dropping out frames and everything that made the James Bond film editing notable that we talked about in the other podcasts. This is the guy. It's the same guy. So why doesn't it match up? I don't understand it either, but he went for a stylistic choices, a lot of them, in fact, when he did this movie. This is now the late 60s. Movies look and feel differently than they did at the first half of this decade. The 60s are a huge transformative time in cinema. At the start of this, one kind of entertainment. At the end of it, a much more bold, brash, edgy entertainment. And I think they were trying to maybe reinvent this character for the youth market of that day. You think this was a reinvention? I mean, they really were trying to stay the course. There is so much of, hey, it's the same. Hey, it's the same. It's a paying no attention to the man behind the tuxedo kind of moment, in my opinion. I agree. I see an entirely different movie. It's kind of summed up in the beginning line that Bond has. He's like, this never happened to the other fellow. And indeed, that's the theme of the movie. They didn't just change Bond. They changed the formula. They changed everything about this. It doesn't move, feel, or look like it used to. I think it's a conscious choice. I don't see this as very connected to the crazy campiness of Goldfinger or You Only Live Twice at all. I agree with you in some ways, but to me, the overall tone isn't that dissimilar, and we'll get into it as we go through the movie. Yeah, I agree with you also, Stuart, but they made great 
great lengths to make sure that this is part of the series officially, while certainly tonally and even in plot, there are differences that we never saw in Connery, and we'll talk about them as we go after we do a plot summary. On vacation, James Bond sees a woman drowning on a beach. He goes to rescue her and is attacked viciously. It turns out the woman was Contessa Tracy DiVincenzo, daughter of international crime boss Draco, who considers himself the head of the world's largest crime syndicate until Bond rightly points out that Spectre, headed by Blofeld, is bigger. Blofeld is Bond's own white whale after the events in the previous films, and he'd been taken off the case to find Spectre by MI6, which prompts Bond to resign. But Money Penny steps in and just has Bond ask for a two-week vacation instead, so Bond heads back to Draco. Bond wants information from Draco on where Blofeld is, but Draco wants something different. He finds his daughter to be headstrong and troubled, her drowning a suicide attempt, and Draco offers Bond a million pounds to romance and marry Tracy. But Bond says he'll do it for the information on Blofeld. Tracy, being the smart woman that she is, causes her father to give up the information almost immediately to release Bond from his bargain, and Bond is taken with Tracy and romances her anyway. But Blofeld is in the Swiss Alps, a neutral country where the British government cannot extradite the international terrorist. He's working on a plot to poison and sterilize the world, wiping out scores of species and plants if the world governments do not pay his ransom. He plans to spread his poison through sleeper agents. Blofeld pretends to have a facility that can cure young women of allergies, but in fact, he's planting subconscious suggestions and giving them the poison that they will release across the globe when he gives the command. But Blofeld is also taken with proven he is a born count, and he's hired a famous genealogist to prove it. The genealogist works with Bond and allows Bond to infiltrate Blofeld's base by posing to be Sir Hilary Bray. But Bond's randy nature exposes him as not being the gay Bray, and Blofeld takes him captive and shows him nifty plans before trying to kill 007. But Bond escapes and finds out from M that the government's plan to pay Blofeld's ransom and give him his title of Count. So with Draco's men, Bond goes rogue and launches an attack on Blofeld's base in the Alps. And in a bobsled chase, Blofeld is clotheslined by a tree, taken out, his plan thwarted. And Bond, truly in love with Tracy, returns to Draco's house and marries the woman, even refusing Draco's million pounds. But on the way to their honeymoon, Bond is attacked by Blofeld and his henchman Irma Blunt. Bond dodges the Tommy Gun's bullets, but Tracy is fatally hit, and Bond cradles his dead wife in his arms, kissing her as credits roll. So coming into this movie... I'm kind of the newbie to the Bond franchise. I haven't seen any of them in about 20 years. I can't tell them apart. And I've been the one to give the most number of not recommends. I was going into this already with a strike against it. It's the George Lazenby one. There's a reason it's the one I never saw before. Because obviously if this guy was a one-hit wonder, he wasn't very good. The movie wasn't very good. They ran back to Connery after this. I just went in with low expectations. And immediately, though, this film grabbed me with this opening fight on the beach. I cannot think of all the Bond films we've watched so far in this retrospective of a better fight than the one we get right here. Better shot, better choreographed, as action-y. I'd said in the previous ones Connery kept getting better with the action, but right now, going to the younger Lazenby, it looks like Lazenby's rough and tumble, and I'm instantly sucked in, all my hesitation forgotten. 
I'm glad to hear you say that. And I like the way they introduced the man, too, with just showing his lips and not really showing his face until they get to the beach. And when they introduce him, you're right. It's right out of the gate with these super duper like Mike Tyson punch out uppercuts and everything. It's really kind of fun to get into the water. You're right. It really does grab you instantly. And it's a wonderful way to open this movie. I'm going to make the case here. They're going for something different. No Bond would ever dare open this way before. This doesn't necessarily feel like the open to a James Bond. If they hadn't had the goofy prologue with M and Moneypenny going, where's Bond? Where's Bond? At the start of this, this would feel very, very dramatic and weird and not connected at all to any other Eon production. One thing I don't understand in this opening scene is who these people are and why they're on the beach trying to kill Tracy. If she's there to kill herself, okay. They're not trying to kill her. They are her protectorate. They're her dad's goons. They pop up again and again throughout the movie. They're supposed to be doing the job that Bond has to do. What my question is, why is she trying to kill herself? We understand she's impetuous. That's established early. She makes crazy bets at the roulette table and doesn't have the money to back them out. She just does things brashly and it can be self-destructive and blow up on her face. And I understand that she's that kind of person, but I never understood what would bring her to throw herself into the ocean hoping to be carried away and drowned. Maybe because she knows her dad will bail her out and things like that? Whatever it is, it's not here in the movie. It's a strangely fatalistic way to begin the movie. The movie ends fatalistically. Again, I'm saying, they're trying to go for that era's audience. This is no longer early 60s audience. These are the kids that want graduate. Bonnie and Clyde, Midnight Cowboy, artsy cuts, pessimistic themes, a darker, grittier take. This is a radical reinvention. Well, maybe radical is too strong a word, but definitely a reinvention for the character. Stuart, the director decided to stay very close to the book as possible on the screen, and Fleming wrote this book when the Bond series had already started filming or was already starting to be released. It was a response to what he was seeing and the tone that he was seeing on the screen, from what I understand. What you're saying about the tone being different, it might be just be the tone of the book being differently, too. But again, I see so many connections towards this series. I think the movie's way it's shot and edited and things like that are different, right? And I think what you're onto about the time period of the movie, 1969, is an amazing year for movies. But I don't think it's an entire departure. I can see why you'd think it here in this opening. I just thought it was better action. I don't know if it was attempting to go for this grittier feel. Certainly, nothing in the rest of this movie is going to make me think Midnight Cowboy. And honestly and sadly, this feeling I have of the freshness went away really quickly. This opening fight, I love the way it's shot. It's on a beach at sunset. It's dark. You see silhouettes fighting. This is the best moment in the entire movie to me, but this is a high the movie doesn't sustain. By the time we're a half an hour in, what I found fresh and thought was going to be new and different in the beginning, it fades away and it just becomes like all the rest. I would say it's worse than all the rest. This first hour is a slog. My expectations came crashing down too, Arnie, and pretty quickly. The setup to get him to the Swiss Alps is labored and strange, and I don't even know why we spend the amount of time we do. This picture runs long, longer than it needs to, but there is an hour where we have things we've never seen in a Bond movie, like a love montage. 
There are a lot of firsts here. The first hour, of course, obviously is setting up the love story between Diana Rigg and George Lazenby here. So if you're not into the love story and these two falling for each other and the character study that we're getting of Contessa, then I have nothing to tell you guys. The first hour is a little slow. I will give you that. But I do enjoy the scenes between Bond and Tracy very, very much. Yeah, they don't spend a montage and play a whole song. Usually the song goes in the credits. The credits here are just the John Barry score. It's the first true instrumental we've had. The quote-unquote Bond song comes from Louis Armstrong. This was totally unexpected. I had no idea Louis Armstrong had done a Bond song, but we get his sort of bittersweet ballad all the time in the world, and we see them holding hands and walking on the beach and doing all of this love story affectation. That is not something they would have ever done in You Only Live Twice or Goldfinger. In some of the previous ones, we had long stretches where it took too long to get to the action. And here, you say this first hour is a slog. I'm actually somewhat enjoying it. For some reason, I'm sitting here scratching my head and I'm like, wow, James Bond starring in Taming of the Shrew. Okay, I'll go with that. It's a little wacky. I'm not sure if I'd agree to it in a pitch, but... I'm kind of enjoying Bond again with an equal woman who's so smart that she gets him what he needs and is ready to be done with him. I'm enjoying it, but it doesn't feel all that different from some of the ones before that took a while to get to their action. Also, before this, Bond quits. Bond tries to quit MI6. Again, all different things. We've never seen Bond walk away from the job. He goes rogue here. The assignment he takes is not handed to him by M. It is something that he undertakes with a crime overlord. That's kind of big. That's kind of new. That seems like late 60s pessimism seeping in here. But what I'm talking about in this first hour that is a slog for me are the times when he has to be spy. The stuff with the Contessa is great. And I think Diana Rigg may be one of the best Bond girls I've ever seen. I've never watched an episode of The Avengers, but watching her here makes me want to. It's the first time we've seen a woman hold her own. She looks like an equal to Bond. And that's exciting to see. She gives it back just as much as he gives it. And that's refreshing. I agree completely. And obviously she was cast because he was such a no name. She's a name and she has something to bring to the table. And not only do we have one woman throughout the whole time, as opposed to like the first act, second act, different women, we have this one woman, but we have a strong one at that. And it's a nice change. I'm so glad to hear you like that stuff. I was wondering what you were meaning by the slog. Okay, I'll tell you. Let's break into a lawyer's office and get some construction rig to bring in this giant safe-cracking code device and spend all of this time trying to get information about Blofeld's genealogy questions. That stuff. I love that scene because there's no dialogue in it. It's just machinations. Everything's done in quiet. I would think a slog scene would be he pulling out all the props from previous Bond movies as music plays from those movies underneath. They were trying to connect us as, oh, this is the guy that took us on an adventure to Thunderball. This was the guy that had been in all those other movies. I say don't go that way. Don't try and remind us of Connery at all. It's clearly that you want to do something different. Keep going with the difference. Every time that they try to make this Connery, it's a mistake. What I see here is a paralysis of creativity. What I see is a franchise 
petrified at the loss of the star, who in the very previous movie, they said, Sean Connery is James Bond. And now, somebody else is James Bond. They're eating their words. And I see all these pullouts, all these comments as, please, please, please to like us. It's not a paralysis of creativity. They're introducing one woman, love montage, grittier action. This has a different feel entirely. It is not you only live twice with a new guy. There's no laughs. They're really downplaying the laughs. They're more wry smiles. Yeah, the Playboy thing got a smile out of me, but it's not the same thing as a girl that's spray-painted gold. I mean, it's just not. The outlandishness seems to be toned down. The story they're telling here, Stuart, is not one of outlandishness. It is a love story. The entire premise of this plot is different. And the script was probably written for Connery. That is a given. Because why wouldn't they? Even though he said he wasn't coming back, wouldn't it be wonderful to see Connery in this episode? It'd be great. But they don't have him. This is the story they want to tell. And it has great action sequences. But the difference here is that Bond isn't womanizing. Oh, he's a womanizer. Uh, I feel this one is smitten, where the other ones, he's not as smitten. He beds actually all of those women that he meets in the ski lodge. He very much still has that rascal when he's on mission kind of attitude. That's sort of the disconnect. These early, more dour scenes and the fatalistic ending don't really mesh with the ski lodge stuff as well, because that's where I felt like they were still trying to be Connery when they finally get to the Blofeld stuff. But that stuff is also the best stuff in the movie. The stuff at the ski lodge? Absolutely. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh Jesus Christ. (laughs) You say this isn't like the previous movies. Well, I will say something has always stuck out to me about James Bond and I got ridiculed early on in this retrospective for asking questions about the logic of why things happen in James Bond movies. So one thing I never bothered to raise is, why doesn't he ever fake what his name is? Everybody knows who James Bond is, and so that seemed a problem to me. This was the first time we saw him going undercover. And I found this entire segment to be so intolerable of him pretending to be a gay genealogist undercover at Blofeld Station and seeing the Star Trek hypnosis. Any affection I had for this movie went away the longer Lazenby played Bray. And it's because Connery would never be this slow of a character to just sit among these people and investigate so lazily. I disagree. I think this is what Lazenby does best in the movie. I think that he has zero sex appeal. Like, he's got Connery's smirk, but none of his swagger. I don't really buy him in the way that I bought Connery. But when he is playing this wry imposter, I think, yeah, that's kind of who you are. You're here pretending to be somebody else. And I buy you when you kind of look and wink at the camera and go, isn't this ridiculous? That is something I can accept, but he is not a replacement for Connery. He does have a great Connery moment, or a great Bond moment, I should say, early on when he confronts Contessa in the hotel room, and he has a good Bond moment when he breaks into Draco's office. I liked him there, but when he started talking to Draco, and he started talking to Blofeld here, and he's playing straight Bond without the action-y Bond, I had a little problem with the stiffness here and there. When he's playing Bray, 
it's all exposition, and it doesn't play very well. It's a little slow for me. And Blofeld's plot is not that interesting. But thankfully, I was tricked. It has been a few years since I've seen the movie, so when the second night comes around, I'm like, oh my god, another night of this? And they quickly get out of it? I was very thankful. I had absolutely no problem believing Lazenby as Bond during the opening scenes with Contessa, where he's gambling, where he's fighting. He's every bit a good Bond to me. I'm really liking him there. It's when he takes on that persona, he loses me. But I'm really liking him as Bond until he gets to that damn ski lodge. Okay, so for one hour, you feel like he is giving you everything that Connery gave you. I feel he's doing better. Wow. Really? Whoa. Because of the action, because of the fights, because he's more physical, that gives him the edge that Connery never had. And in the rest of it, he's par. Okay, I don't even feel like there's that much action here, and I feel like the action you're complimenting is a lot of quick cuts. He'll enter a room and crouch down and throw a knife, and it's ten different shots, and that's cool, but I don't feel like he's imposing. I don't get the sense that he's a heavy. I think we need to give a little more credit to Connery's physicality. I think the last movie, we made a comment that he looks old and he looks slower and he's kind of slogging through it. We didn't like his performance as much as last time as we did in From Russia With Love or even in Goldfinger. But here, Glazenby does bring a lot to the role. You think he's not necessarily playing Sean Connery all the time. I think he's trying to put his own spin on it. But again, not much he can do with that considering the shadow looms so large. And again, the script feels like it was written for Connery. He does get some good one-liners off here and there, too, that play perfectly. He does have a lot going for him. I don't think he's a terrible Bond at all. No, no, no. You're giving him credit he does not deserve. He's got good lines. He's got good moments. He has this love scene. That's not him. That is Louis Armstrong playing a good tune. All of these things are immeasurably helping a man that does not have it. Connery would kill in this part this guy gets through it i think it works even if it is all that bells and whistles around him making him look good it's working for me no actor is an island you can give somebody a good line and an actor can screw it up lazenby is given a good script but he's also delivering the lines in a good way making an enjoyable performance I am disagreeing with what you're both saying. I hear what you're saying. I'm saying that he is not matching good material. It makes me appreciate what Connery was doing. When things aren't working, Connery is still fun to watch. Here's an installment that's really jiving, and I can't fully get into it until we get to the ski lodge because of this guy. But I do think that when he is in character here, when he is playing Hillary and playing off the girls and all of that stuff, that is the funny stuff. Like I said, he's a wry imposter. He's a one-off. He's the placeholder until we get a real bond, and that's kind of how he works here for me. Blofeld. Not only do we have a new Bond, we got a new Blofeld. Who loves you, baby? <laughs> Who is Telly Savalas? Kojak! Who's Kojak? <laughs> He's a police detective. He likes lollipops. He says, Who loves you, baby? Um, he was also in The Dirty Dozen. I I'm running out of Kojak. I knew The Dirty Dozen. Kojak, I always confuse him with Columbo. Oh, they're two different characters. And also, he was in those Player Clubs commercials when we were growing up. That is what I knew him from. I knew him from the Diners Club. <laughs> oh, poor Telly. 
Telly is not Donald Pleasance, and the only reason I can find Pleasance was not here is because they didn't find him physically imposing enough for the scenes that were needed for this movie of Blofeld in action. That's from one source. That's nowhere else. I can't find a real reason why the guy wasn't here. What a mistake. They don't need to be physically imposing. The Emperor in Return of the Jedi wasn't physically imposing. That's why he had Vader there. I think that Pleasance was a creepy performance that I loved, and it was just so strange and everything. Telly Savalas in this movie, he makes me feel like he's interviewing Lazenby for a late-night talk show. I've not totally sold on what Savalas is doing here. I do miss Pleasance. Here's the thing about Blofeld. I always thought he was in a wheelchair like i never thought that he could stand you know he's always seen for so long sitting and stroking a cat i thought that was all he could do and pleasance is physically scary because they gave him that scar and like i said there's just sort of a nazi grafting onto him and you only live twice here i guess i just didn't anticipate that they were going to put blofeld on skis what i get off this blofeld that's different is i don't believe this guy is the head of specter who has this maniacal world domination plan he comes across more of a brute to me as opposed to a mastermind and his plan here is very mastermindy but the man's physical way he is and the way he talks to bond is a little more street thug this one doesn't have supporting henchmen like that you might be onto something brock it might be more satisfying if telly savalas was the heavy who worked for blofeld have donald pleasant still there and this is his muscle that comes into the room and makes you pay attention to it. I could have gone with that. He does have Irma Blunt. She's the heavy. She's the henchman. And she is freaky. She goes back to the one we saw a few movies ago with the knife in the shoe. Clep. Yep. It does have a lot of echoing of Clep. Blofeld doesn't recognize James Bond wearing the Clark Kent disguise, and even when he's not wearing the glasses, he doesn't recognize him. Blofeld, you can see maybe he got some plastic surgery, but we're supposed to believe that this is James Bond, and they have met before. We saw them meet in the last movie. That really bothered me, too. It's a different Blofeld, it's a different Bond. Maybe they haven't met before, but yeah, that bothered me. I take it as exactly that. It's If this were Connery in the role, I might have the problems that you guys are having, but this is a new Bond. I don't recognize him either. You go with it because Bond is filled with absurdities. We're not here to point them all out. This one wasn't a problem for me. This is the only one for me in the movie. This might actually kill other movies for me, but not this one for some reason. I give them this one and it's weird for me to acknowledge that. <laughs> I admit that in other movies it might get me. The explanation I read somewhere was because this book comes before you only live twice and things, so they're trying to stay close to the book, etc. But they could have rewritten it a little bit or maybe giving him more of a disguise because to me it comes off also like they want us to think this is the same character but yet since he looks differently they can get away with not recognizing each other keep in mind there was no vhs there were no home movies audiences may not remember so clearly and be able to go i went to the tape and they met I see it. I can show you right here. It's at the 47 minute, 52 second mark. It's kind of an audience who's like, we've seen some James Bond films. Maybe we saw the last one. Maybe we didn't. Who's going to remember that specifically? If you go to the book, it's different anyway. Sure. 
Yeah, last time it was a gray ninja suit. This time he's kind of dressed up like Sherlock Holmes. There is a disparity between the starkness of the first part and this is more of the goofy, silly Bond as I think of him in Connery mode. Arnie, I'm hearing you don't like this plot. I think this one's kind of clever. Straight out of the Manchurian Candidate. I saw the Manchurian Candidate immediately. Which came first? Manchurian Candidate came out before the book was even written. Okay. An obvious ripoff. I recognized it because we were talking Manchurian Candidate weeks back with Spider-Man. So it felt a little derivative to me. But more, am I the only one who felt like this was a lot smaller than previous Blofeld schemes? I mean, previously he's dealing with nuclear bombs. And now he's really focused on getting the legitimate title of Count? I don't understand. He has earlobes. What is this all about? (laughs) All of this back and forth about... I have no earlobes, therefore I have the right to this. I can only presume that this is about money. That if he can claim his heritage, he can get more money. And Blofeld, I'm starting to learn, is all about the money. But Blofeld wasn't even about money in the past. He was about destabilization of governments. No, he was about money, Arnie. If you really think about it, the stealing the nuke was about extorting and getting cash. But from the very beginning, from Dr. No Times, Spectre was out to overthrow governments. There was more to it than just a hefty payday. Because if you steal $100 million, where can you spend it when the whole world is trying to arrest you. Arnie, that's what I thought, but I'm telling you, having seen a couple of these plots now, I don't think that's what he's about. That's what I liked about him in From Russia With Love. He seemed to be pitting East and West against each other. Actually, Stuart, in Russia With Love, he was looking to do that and make money at the same time. He was actually going to resell the spy machine back to the Russians. And here, he's looking to destroy agriculture and then take the world by ransom, say, pay me the money and I'll help you clean up all the crops that I'm destroying with these women Across the world. That's what he's doing here. He's doing the exact same thing. His amazing plan to what? Hold the world ransom for money. And that was the same, but it just felt so much more petty that he's doing it and not at the same time overthrowing governments. He's just going to poison the world if he doesn't get his money. It felt smaller. It felt less cool. It felt not like an escalation that I'm used to in a sequel where the next plot is even more devious and even more deadly. I kind of felt they popped their cherry early by going to the nukes right away. I was surprised that we were dealing with nuclear problems in the first few films, but now this whole thing, ooh, sexy women are going to unleash poison? No, I disagree. Any old chump can wave a nuke around and say, I'm a badass. It has takes someone smart and devious to put this kind of plan together. The idea that I could release something that's going to get through airport security and all, it's not seen as a major toxin, but has the ability to say, wipe out honeybees or something, you know, something that would have massive devastation to an area's agriculture. This seems much more clever. He can really hold people at ransom. Dropping a nuke, well, we know what that would look like. I feel like this has a lot more mystery to it. 
other places in the 1940s and 30s in the radio programs, they would have characters poisoning water supplies. And at first you'd think like, oh my gosh, who cares about that? But if you think about it, there's no real way to come back from that. If agriculture is destroyed all over the world, that will have effects on everything. And even if you could say, give me the money, I'll give you the cure, whatever he's going to say, the damage is done. The damage is done. Did he say he had a cure? I thought the deal was he wouldn't do it except in small doses if he was given the money and it, the doses would be small enough yeah the damage is done i never got there was a cure i just got that he wouldn't escalate if he was paid i almost took it as i'll work with you and wipe out your enemies and you can be the only one to produce food it seems to me like it was negotiable he could customize the way that the world could run on a bioweapons idea and i think bioweapons are scary for me you know those movies terrify me in a way that nuclear war doesn't anymore i mean nuclear war is bad, don't get me wrong, but there's something about viruses and toxins and Ebola and viruses. All that stuff, to me, is actually much more creepy. Now, why does he only pick women? I took it just as they get a whole bunch of pretty women in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I took it, too, is wherever Bond goes, beautiful women are waiting for him in droves. And especially since he's playing a gay man, it makes it even that much harder to resist. It's all that's around him. I think the stuff's kind of funny. What can I say? Dropping the kilt and her exclaiming it is true. You know, all that kind of stuff. I felt like this stuff worked. I liked the idea that these were the women and they were the threat. I just am having a real problem getting into these scenes. I think it's completely the performance I'm getting from Lazenby pretending to be this genealogist, and the genealogist is just such an ineffectual character, and yeah, it was bothering me the whole time that Blofeld was talking to him and not recognizing him. All of this together was making these scenes very unpleasant for me. Well, I will say this. I like Lazenby's gay genealogist better than his Bond. But regardless, 90 minutes into the movie, it's time to finally get to some action here. There's still almost an hour to go, but it's time to launch a extended climax. And we get the stuff that I remember. The skiing. Curling. They got every winter sport in here, but building a snowman. They really go to town with the ice and snow. I love the ski chases. I love the stunts that's going on here. Did you guys notice when he almost falls off the cliff, there's a wire on his ankle? I didn't notice the wire. When he went to one ski, all I could think of was better off dead. He's skiing on one ski! Me too. It was in my head the whole time. Again, one of the things they haven't fixed in the previous ones is the awful blue screening. I like it later on in the movie when they're running from the avalanche. There's a couple of shots where they superimpose real skiers with an avalanche. And that looked really good. And it took me a second to go, how'd they do that? Were those real skiers running from a real avalanche? in stock footage it wasn't until they showed it like the third shot that i figured it out but that's far too little far too late i was not into this and i was really missing the rough and tumble action from the beginning when i'm now watching skiing and bad blue screen the professional skiing stuff here the location shots are wonderful 
But I was taken out every time we caught to Telly Savalas holding the poles and trying to move his body and trying to create the sensation that he's going down those Alps. That stuff did take me out of it. It was, I hate to say it, I was disappointed. I had heard such great stuff about the ski moments, and it's half great. Pleasance couldn't have been worse. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but the problem really is that I don't believe that he's there. Indeed, he is not there. That hurts these scenes because I'm I'm wanting to get caught up in the action. It definitely was not them. It was all second unit stuff. I really like the stunt work. I am going to be more forgiving of the insert shots because I enjoyed the stunt work and the skiing and the speed and the way it was edited enough. It works for me considerably. I was taken more out of it in the inserts for the bobsled than I was here. I wanted a henchman that could sell me the reality of this. And if maybe they had really actually hired an Olympic skier, you know, maybe his hands are poles, give him the full campy treatment. I think that would have made me happy. But here, I guess Irma is supposed to be our henchman, you know, the bad girl. She's not wacky enough for me. She only works in the way that Angela Lansbury does in Manchurian Candidate. She doesn't get any of that kind of stuff here. She's way too tamped down. I needed a crazy henchmen to sell me on these moments. Well, she had more to do also. That other character was around much more. This one pops in and out as needed. Do we know why Tracy comes back into the picture? Why she's here in the village when Bond finally gets down from the secret lair and gets to the actual ski lodge? She's there at an ice skating rink. I was confused. That makes two of us. I'm glad I'm not alone there. Her father told her where Bond was. We have a scene earlier where she admits to her father in the car that she loves Bond and knows that Bond isn't in love with her yet. And so she's here looking for him. I loved Lazenby's face in that scene when he sees her, though. I liked his acting there. I thought his face lit up and was actually legitimately happy to see this woman. My face lit up when that polar bear on skates (laughs) rolled by. Oh my god, what was with that? That was crazy. Is it wrong that I wanted that to be the henchman that Bond fights? I actually felt tension when they were hiding and the fireworks were going off. It was the type of tension that reminded me of the Connery one when he was in the Bahamas and dancing. I really was enjoying these scenes back with Teresa in it again. It's funny. He proposes to her and then they're not going to have sex until they're married. It's his New Year's resolution. Well, it's not New Year's yet. There is some good one-liners. There is some of that coy, sexy, Bond character characterization here on the page i just am at odds with you guys about how well lazenby is selling it i think she's also selling it big time i think the two of them working together are great if he's having lacking skills she's picking up the ball and helping him through it i'm not sure if he's totally bad Stuart. i'm not saying he is i'm saying that it's possible that she's making him look really good to me his strongest acting in this movie is every time he's with her After the ski lodge, I never reconnected with him. I so disengaged from his performance when he was up there that when he came back down, I'm just like, I don't like you because you were so passive up there and just lame as that genealogist. He was pissing me off. The scenes with Blofeld and when he sees his countrymen strung up, he just comes off weak. I so turned on him because when it started off, I'm like, wow, it's the toughest bond yet. And when he does nothing, 
nothing up there, and he just becomes so weak to me. I hate this Bond. I was mad that they tried to sell us the old Bond and sleeping with all the women, and then tried to tell us that, nope, he was ready to give this all up. Not only does he want to marry Tracy, I think he's ready to turn in the whole number. I think that as the movie heads towards its dramatic climax, he is going to be a different person, and that's robbed from him. I think we get what you're both talking about when he comes back for Tracy in the lodge. Arnie, there's a moment when he's on his belly, gliding down the ice, shooting. That, to me, is a very Bond moment, but at the same time, empowered by he's coming for Tracy. So he got a character empowered for the first time to take action and has a reason to do so besides Queen and Country. It's personal. Yes, Tracy's taken captive. We don't know that Bond would have stayed in this if Tracy had gotten away. I'd like to think so. It is like the fate of the whole world with his toxins being released. He goes back and breaks into the lodge at the climax because she is in peril. And I love that. Arnie, if he was neutered in those other scenes, I think because he was in character, we've seen that in a lot of other movies where people can't say, hey, don't hurt my friend because then they blow their own cover and the whole thing is for naught. That's what I took from those scenes. I didn't see anything else. But the best thing about the thing is he comes back for Tracy and she's doing fine on her own. All of a sudden, this is a love triangle and both Blofeld and Bond want Tracy and she's playing Blofeld. She breaks the bottle at the strategic moment. I love her in these scenes. I think it's real fun. And you're right. I like this Bond too. I never thought of James Bond as wielding a machine gun. But when he skids across that ice and is just mowing down people, it's messing with my aesthetic, but I do like it. We had the bobsled chase after that. Why do you need to chase someone in a bobsled and fight the way down? You're going the same place. It's almost like a water slide chase. (laughs) Can't you just get to the bottom and then have the fight? I'm telling you, they had to work in everything snow related. I just wanted John Candy and the cast of Cool Runnings to pass them. That's my only bobsled reference. That's all I know of bobsledding. I think the problem is I didn't want Blofeld to be this guy in the last movie, You Only Live Twice. It was other people that he was fighting. It was the henchmen on the Piranha Bridge, the ninjas dropping down. The fights never seem to be with Blofeld directly. That it's actually going to be a mano-mano on a bobsled. Well, the bobsled's weird, but that it's mano-a-mano with these two is even weirder to me. I think it plays great. After the last one, which was a great big Bond fight, Bond wasn't involved in the fight. This time, it's all Bond for me, and that's what I'm here for. This is one of the things that bother me. You say it's all Bond, but no. He has Draco's men. It's Draco's men who got him there, and Draco's men did the whole assault. Bond and Blofeld may be one-on-one, but Bond himself didn't do it. It's, again, more people coming to weak Bond's aid. And now it's mano-a-mano, Bond versus Blofeld. Blofeld is a cat petter. Blofeld's not a brawler. Irma Blunt needed to be the one on that bobsled doing some fighting to see a secret agent go up against an aging genius. It's not a fair fight. Well, again, they have a different blow field here for this very reason, I think. You're exactly right. If it was Donald Pleasance and things like that, it'd be an unfair fight. And I think that's what they're trying to do here. They're toughening this up. This is Bond with the bad guys. England is ineffectual. England is going to pay the ransom. England is weak. Bond is not doing this as an agent of Her Majesty. This is not on Her Majesty's Secret Service, despite what the title says. This is Bond alone fighting for his chick with some goons that in another adventure he might be fighting himself. 
most of the focus is Bond versus Blofeld. Yes, he gets there with Draco, and yes, he uses the machine gun and mows down the guys that get in the fortress himself, but the focus of the end battle is very much the two of them. It doesn't really matter that Draco's men are there. But we've already seen Bond be smart enough and clever enough to do this type of thing solo. The fact that it ends him versus Blofeld, that's how all scripts end. Even though it's a different actor, this is Blofeld who we've seen since movie two. This isn't what I think of for Blofeld's strength being bobsled fights. So I have a weak Bond fighting a weak supervillain in a weak movie. I mostly agree with you, at least on the fact that these aren't the strongest Bond or Blofelds I've seen before. It is impacting my enjoyment, but I'm not going to say I didn't get some kind of vicarious thrill out of even the bobsled stuff. It's just, like you said, not what I want. But follow that, the movie's not over. This is kind of a first. I would think that, you know, he'd get down to the end, make the joke with the St. Bernard, and then the sex raft would fall from the sky and be with the Bond girl for the moment and we'd fade out and find out where we were going next but he commits to what he promised in that barn he gets married I was shocked. I thought I remembered one of the Bond movies, again, all a blur, starting with his wife had just been killed. When I saw this, I'm like, okay, well, I guess this is where he gets married and next movie she'll die. And I was really surprised I was going to call you guys because you guys always said the first one he sleeps with always dies. Ha ha. (laughs) You might be referring to For Your Eyes Only, Arnie. Hell if I know, we'll get there. The marriage scene is certainly one of a kind to me and it certainly plays well and what a wonderful scene it actually brought tears to my eyes knowing that money penny has wanted to be the one to walk down the aisle with bond and that he's thinking of her on his wedding day the fact that he's been tossing his hat to her all these years unrequited does it on his wedding day with that look i mean i choked up i'm right there with you Stuart. especially after not liking this movie very much and not liking this bond very much at the end, in this wedding, when you bring in M and Q and Money Penny, he became Bond again to me. He might as well have been Connery. He became an invisible difference. With Money Penny, I just sat there and I felt so bad for her. I loved seeing Q at a wedding. <laughs> It's funny to me that the scenes where Bond is having a romance are working better for me than the scenes where Bond is having a fight, but that's the case in this movie, and the biggest romantic scene in the wedding is the best of the scenes there. They could have ended here. I would have accepted a wink, a nudge, maybe sex in the back of the limo. I still feel like this is not so far until they take it one step further. They actually did hedge their bets there, Stuart. If you notice the car when it drives off, it pans up towards the sky. The director, not sure if they were going to use the coda as the opening of the next movie, made sure he had an ending shot just in case they pulled it. They're lucky they put the coda on here. (laughs) Otherwise, they would have to do it with Connery in the next movie. It would have been a different Tracy, too, so it would have all been fine. You know, Stuart, when we had our poltergeist discussion, you said how, as an adult, you'd be like, this isn't right, she's in the bathtub, and you'd know something else was coming. Because I think I remembered some movie opening with the death of a wife, I just was sitting here going, da-da-da-da-da, let's wait for the credits to roll, and I never saw it coming. But I kind of thought there'd be a last attack. There's always the last attack. But I never expected her to die. They pulled the rug right out from under me. And I just sat there looking at the screen like, no, no, no. 
it hit me hard. It would hit me harder if they had an actor that had the dramatic gravitas to pull it off. What's painful about the scene is that Lazenby is no good in it. It's too bad that the moment gets eclipsed by the fact that we have someone that was in the chocolate commercial and not someone that came from stage or screen. I think it works completely. I had to watch it twice. The first time I was getting a little misty-eyed, and I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times. And the second time, I just wanted to see how fast the cop came, so I wanted to see how fast it was. I was looking for technical stuff the second time. Stuart, I disagree with you. I think he plays it perfectly, the way he puts his mouth into her. They hide his face! They cut around him! They're trying to not show you his reaction because they know he can't give a good one. I disagree. The tone of his voice, the body language he uses, he's constantly nuzzling her. I am so with this. Connery would kill in this moment, and Lazenby kills in this moment. He does not. It's the only time he kills in the movie. I agree with Arnie completely. I think he plays it perfectly. I think it works great. I'm very happy with the way it's edited with Lazenby there, how it pulls away on the glass shot. There's look a very low, tender music before they go into the bomb theme. I think it's a great way to end the movie. That last moment is very much in the time period. Every movie for the next decade would end on a sour note. It is setting up a whole decade for disappointment, depression, the dreams of marriage, and what you think thought when you were growing up not turning out to be what you thought and i love the last line he says we have all the time in the world that keeps repeating it over again which is the name of the song it's just one of those nice tie-ins to what they have usually they do it thematically throughout the whole movie where they have the title song underneath the rest of the movie without lyrics but since they don't have a title song because they couldn't figure out a way to use the title so i'm not wrong there is no on her majesty's secret service on her majesty's secret service there's none of that there is now thank you arnie that's fantastic no there isn't because they all decided the title of this movie is just too clunky to put into a song this movie should have been called all the time in the world it's a great title louis armstrong is the perfect choice you know he's someone that, whose voice brings happiness and tears of sorrow there's just something touching about him and even though he's got that rasp and the song's maybe not one of the best the poignancy the way that he sings it captures the feelings and what they're trying to do here i have no feelings about it it's very forgettable I can't wait for you to like one of the Bond songs. I'm guessing it's going to be Duran Duran and nothing before then. I'm guessing Live and Let Die is my actual guess. <laughs> we'll see. Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Stuart. Well, here's the thing. It was a movie that was unfairly maligned when it came out. This one was not nearly as successful as the Connery efforts had been. And when I grew up, have been told that this one was a bad one. It didn't work. And then somewhere in the last 10, 15 years, it became trendy to like this one and call this one of your favorites. And I think both are wrong. I think that this is a good bond. I don't think it is a great bond. Part of the reason why it's not a great bond is that you have Lazenby and not Connery. But because we have Lazenby and because he has the deficits he does, we're left with one that's kind of in the middle. But it's solid. It's good. And I do enjoy it. I understand why people like it. And it definitely gives me something that no other bond does. I'm going to guess until we get to the reboot with Daniel Craig, Casino Royale. I I don't think we're going to get one with a stark dramatic 
dramatic and themes of love and disappointment until far into the series again. But I also want to say, just to be fair, I wouldn't mind Lazenby continuing in the role. I don't think he's very good here, but I kind of wish that I could see him get better. There's something here that I'd like to see go on and that I feel like maybe if they tailor the movies more to what his skills are and he works on those skills, maybe less chocolate and a little more acting class, he could have grown into this part. I can't say that I wouldn't want to have seen him get another one. Timothy Dalton got two. I think Lazenby should have gotten two. I'm going to give this movie a solid recommend. I'm going to give him a weak not recommend. Wow, I'm surprised you said that based on what you said in the rest of this podcast. Arnie? I don't think it's going to shock anyone that I'm not going to recommend this. Stuart was saying that this should have been called All the Time in the World. Got me thinking, what should another title of this be? And I think the perfect title might be Sterile. It's both Blowfield's plot and it's this James Bond. It's just a very sterile, boring, flat Bond characterization. I'm not going to say that I disagree with Stuart. If you go back to Dr. No, we cite some things in Connery's performance that would be improved. It's his first time out in those closing scenes and in those opening scenes he really did work for me and I do blame the script not the actor for what's done with the character here that I dislike in the end I really opened this film with a lot of promise and the end of the film is so strong so I gotta give it a week not recommend because if you can go with this middle bit then you'll probably enjoy it but I couldn't I just liked the beginning and end so much that it would have been a solid recommend without either of those moments with both of them weak and i am one of those people Stuart. when i revisited james bond in the 90s when i bought all my videos i was really taken aback by wow this is actually pretty darn good this one was that movie that everyone did not like and they really played down they made it feel like it's part of the bond canon but it really isn't a real james bond movie if you talk to bond fans on the internet or in person the conversation always comes around to this one because it is so different because of the lead guy i liked some of the differences I didn't care for the Blofeld more than I didn't care for the Bond. I actually like Diana Rigg's performance more each time I watch it. She's doing so many subtle things. I grew up with her as Lady Holiday, not from the Avengers. For me to see her do some dramatic stuff here is wonderful for me. I think Lazenby gets a short shrift. I completely agree with you. He needs to have gotten a second Bond movie at least to really show us what he's capable of. But I do like what he's doing here. I think this movie has a lot of potential. I think the more times you watch it, you can see more subtle things. As a person now who knows film a little bit more than the Brock in his 20s, I'm seeing a lot more of those things this time, this viewing, and really enjoying it. I really liked discovering different aspects of this film again on this viewing. Definite solid recommend. This is a great James Bond. This is one of my favorite James Bond movies, and one of the first ones I bought on DVD. I really like this movie. Yeah, I think we're all saying you should check it out. It's worth seeing, even though I can't necessarily predict what people are going to take away from it. But Lazenby walked away was fired reports were varied but he walks away is the one that's the most consistent his agent gave him some bad advice saying that movies were on a different bent that movies were changing and going away from bond so instead of signing the seven picture deal he walks away from james bond because he's getting all these offers and thinks as he's james bond but for years it was talked about he was fired because he didn't tell the producers in a nice private meeting his representation made an announcement in the 
public. So the safe face, they said, no, we're firing it because the movie didn't do as well and we'll figure something out for the next one. So that's when he walked away willingly, which is crazy town. And even himself says he regrets the decision. Well, because he did, it means we get a return to Connery. Definitely interested in talking about how and why that happened next time. Now playing will return in Diamonds Are Forever. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes of the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. You just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. This is Arnie, and my allergies are cured. This never happened to the other fellow. Would have been my choice. <laughs> yeah. I, what happened to the other fellow? He didn't get introduced? I was saving that for later in the show. Oh, is that what you're... Okay, fine. Plus, it's probably going to be in the credits, and I hate using lines that are already in the credits. They'll hear that line 26 times. I'm just trying to help. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to do, because clearly it didn't fly. Well, we are here for the sixth Bond Eon Spectacular, and the first time that we have a different actor playing Sean Connery, the man has, who has become synonymous with the likes of Garfunkel 
and other folks in the world who don't get the respect they deserve, or maybe they do or do not deserve the respect they get, George Lazenby. <laughs> that made absolutely no sense. Well, there's, it, it there's kinda... your blooper. They don't get the respect they deserve, <laughs> or maybe they don't deserve the respect they get. Well, uh, there's they, a lot I think of... uh, Rodney Dangerfield is the one to go with. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> There, there is a lot of debate in the community whether or not George Lazenby deserves the Garfunkel status. That's what I was trying to say. And what, what's funny is I don't think of him as the Garfunkel. I refer to other people as the George Lazenby. George Lazenby is his own unit. He's not a <laughs> sub-player. He's not the Judge Reinhold to Eddie Murphy. He's... <laughs> He's whoever that singer was of Motley Crue when it wasn't Brett Michaels. Yeah, Gary Sharon on No, that's that's Van Halen. I don't know anything about Motley Crue. Why do you got to go to Motley Crue? <laughs> they were always bad. Any singer, bad. I like Vince Neil. They suck. <laughs> Suddenly this is a show about 87. <laughs> Cover Rock of Ages, all right? I wanted to. You said no. I did. This whole this whole show is turning into a blooper. I know. I'm like, okay, Seriously. so we have like we 10 can start minutes again. of blooper. We Why don't again. we start again? Yes, okay. 